You are listening to the Dabble Co. Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Claire O'Brien. In healthcare, we have so many questions about what's trending versus what's actually the truth. So on this show, we're going to get to the bottom of it. It's health, it's wellness, it's beauty, explained by the people who actually know what they're talking about. guys, welcome back to the Dabble Co. Podcast. I am your host, Claire O'Brien. I'm a nurse practitioner and today I'm coming to you live. I was about to say I'm located in Nashville, Tennessee now, but um, actually today I'm in Merle's Inlet, South Carolina. Um, just here doing some training and I had some time, so I wanted to record a podcast and do 10 questions. Um, Thank you guys always for submitting questions. Also, um, I mean, it's super, it's helpful and fun and it's just funny. I know I, I think I say this every time I do an episode, but, um, it's really fascinating to me how the questions kind of come in groups or waves. Um, and so I am going to take 10 tonight. Also, I lose count sometimes, so I'm going to try to keep count. Sometimes it'll be nine. Maybe it'll be 12. I don't know. Um, so there were a bunch of questions that were just like beginner questions about Botox. Am I too old to get Botox? Am I too young to get Botox? Should my husband get Botox? So I'm just going to kind of run through the Botox spiel. Um, I have a little bit of a background and so I was in head and neck cancer for a while, did a little bit of facial plastics, kind of recon stuff, not a ton, but a little bit, um, and did a little bit of work with Botox, mainly medically, but um, when I was in that practice. So that's kind of where I first, um, got into it. And then now for the last two years have been working with and helping grow the skin click. Um, and I'm an injector and it's a lot of fun, but these are super common questions. Um, so there's no too young age and there's no too old age. There's really not. I mean, the age that you should start getting Botox is really when you just, when you want to, when you feel like it, when you feel like there's something there that bothers you, and you want to try to fix it. So if you're 27, you're not too young if there's something you want to fix. And if you're 57, you're not too old. There's no, there's literally like no age. Um, and yeah, I know there were a couple people that were like, I'm super nervous. Am I going to look crazy? Am I going to look like a real housewife? And no, I mean, you're really, you're not particularly with Botox and, um, Sometimes I think people get really nervous with fillers, which actually makes more sense because that's how people start to actually really look different. So filler is very different and that can really change the look of your, your face. Um, so that's understandable, but we can talk about that another time. So, um, it's just, yeah, there's just no, there's no wrong time to get it and there's no right time to get it. It's just whenever you, you feel like it, um, should your husband get Botox? Sure. Why not? Sure. If you're, if they want to, um, my, I'm I don't know if he listens to the podcast or not. Sometimes he does. Sometimes he doesn't. My husband gets Botox kind of occasionally when I feel like either giving it to him or if I have some extra or if we have a training, um, he also gets migraines and thinks that it's helpful for him because he doesn't furrow his brow so hard. Um, men are different though. And my particular aesthetic with men, I think is a little bit different. Like I, I just think it's, um, I don't know. It's, it's different men 
for the most part, don't want to be as motionless as women and as just completely wrinkleless. Some some men, I mean, everybody's different. It just, yeah, if your husband wants to get Botox, sure, then be on board with that. If he doesn't want to, be on board with that too. I mean, you would want him to be on board with if you don't want to dye your hair, or wear makeup or whatever. So um, that's kind of my take on on that for Botox with, with men. Um, and just you know, make sure whoever you go see has, you know, treated men before. Somebody asked what percentage of my patient population is men. I mean, I think in general, I want to say the statistic is 5% of the general Botox population is men. The other 95% is, um, is women. Now that's different when we're talking medically like migraines, salivary stuff, bladder stuff. That's a whole different kind of category, but just for cosmetic purposes, the percentage is low now, but it is, it's growing. Um, you know, and same with skincare. I think, um, men are realizing, you know, they also care about their appearances sometimes too, and they, you know, may want to get Botox and that is great. Um, so the next question was, what are your thoughts on medical marijuana and or full legalization of marijuana? Um, here is the thing. We have plenty of over-the-counter drugs and things that are for sale legally in the country, like cigarettes after age 18. Although, did they just change it to 21? Um, alcohol. Plenty of over-the-counter medications that could cause, you know, have significantly more risk Um acutely, particularly than marijuana. Um, the long term is not as known for marijuana because we haven't been studying it for as long because it's not been legal, um, for a long, long time. So like we, you know, we can't say there's no long-term effect to, to smoking it because, you know, the likelihood is when you're inhaling something into the lungs, into the mucous membranes that it probably, you know, smoking it over the long term has, some sort of effect on your respiratory system, but we just really don't, you know, know as much like as say like a cigarette. So, um, but am I in favor of it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm in favor of it medically, you know, in terms of it being an anti-medic or an anti-nausea drug, um, in terms of it being useful for pain, headaches, anxiety. Um, are there situations in which it could make some of those things worse? Yes, absolutely. But um, I think used in the right dosage and in the right way in a controlled environment, it's really helpful medically. Um, and yeah, I mean, then an, I, I feel the same way about it really socially. I think, I mean, if you ask any, you know, ER doctor, how many, you know, marijuana overdoses or like marijuana induced accidents do you see on a weekly basis? They'd be like, I don't know, zero and then if you ask them, how many drunk driving accidents do you see? How many, you know, alcohol poisonings or alcohol-related accidents? You know, bar fights, whatever it is. Um, you know, abuse, you know, abuse of children, abuse of you know, partners, domestic partners. There's a million instances, I think, where you can say, you know, alcohol was the fuel to the fire. Um, we know so many negative long-term effects of alcohol. I mean, the risks are gosh, um, infinite, you know, liver damage, liver, you know, certain cancers, um, or, you know, your higher risk when you're drinking alcohol, 
um, daily. It's certainly, you know, worse for your sleep, you know, wake. I mean, there's a, gosh, I mean, the list goes on and on. Basically, if, if there's a, med- a medical issue that you have and the ans- and the question is, is alcohol making it better or worse? I mean, it's typically going to be making it worse, but it's so socially acceptable that, you know, we just kind of go with it and it's readily available. Um, and I think there are, there definitely are some benefits, um, to alcohol. I don't want to say like we should be outlawing alcohol or anything like that. I mean, I certainly drink. Um, but in terms of just asking specifically about full legalization of marijuana, yeah. I mean, I think, um, too, just gosh, this is another discussion for another day, but looking at the criminal justice system, you know, there are so many people in prison right now for these just stupid, nonviolent, you know, very, very small, um, drug offenses typically related to marijuana. Um, one thing when Ed was first working in the correction system, gosh, a long time ago, and I remember he would come home and he would just be like, these, you know, guys are, he was in the men's prison system. He was like, these guys are in jail for like, I don't know the lingo. I should know, like having a dime bag or whatever. That's that a small amount. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not good. I'm not good at the pot lingo. Um, but these like tiny amounts of pot and he's like, now they're in jail for two years. They can't provide for their family. They've got kids. They, now they're not going to have, they can't get another job when they get out. And there's these stupid offenses that are basically like ruining these people's lives. Um, and obviously it's happening for men and women. I'm just using his example of, you know, when he was working in the men's prison system, um, a while ago, but and I, I just, it's just really sad and it's, it's silly. And, you know, I mean, I'm sure you can make the argument that, you know, the law is the law and rules are rules. And, you know, if you break them, you get the, you know, you receive the punishment. And I, I get that. I, I don't want to totally discount that, but, um, gosh, it's just, it's, um, it's really sad. And so I'm, I'm like totally for legalizing it. Um, so next question wasn't really a question. It was just a statement. Snoring solutions, exclamation point. Um, so I feel like I can speak to this a little bit. When the last few years that I was with ENT, I actually worked um, a lot with this really specific um, device. That was this implantable device for snoring. Well, really sleep apnea. But um, so first of all, let me just say snoring. If you have a partner or a child that snores, um, Typically, that person should probably be evaluated for sleep apnea. Not everybody that has snoring has sleep apnea. So if it's a light snore and if they have no symptoms, then then they may not need to be evaluated. But um, so many people are undiagnosed sleep apnea, um, and that is really something that can really affect your long-term health. So Um, and particularly with children, the percentage of children that snore that have sleep apnea is super high. So like if your kid is snoring, just know like it's not normal. Your kid should not snore. Um, talk to your pediatrician about it, probably ask for an ENT, PZNT referral. So, but snoring, um, can be a few things. It can be just anatomical. So you can just have a a bigger tissue in the way than you should. Like you can have big tonsils, you can have a big uvula, you can have a long soft palate, um, a few things that can cause that. You can have big adenoids. Um, weight is a big part of, of snoring and particularly sleep apnea. And so you really want to see someone who 
snoring, snoring without sleep apnea is actually more complicated. So when somebody snores and they have sleep apnea, there's several solutions. So CPAP is the, you know, the gold standard that's super helpful for tons of people. Um, a good, good, really good friend of mine's husband, actually, like we were talking about sleep apnea and he probably had it and he finally went and got tested and he got his CPAP and he was like, this thing has literally like saved my life. Like it is life changing. Anyway, so sleep apnea with snoring, there actually are good solutions. Um, there aren't great surgical solutions for snoring and sleep apnea always. There are sometimes bite guards that can help. Even nasal sprays can help. So like over-the-counter Flonase. But I mean, really the biggest thing I would say, it, there's so, there so many variables to snoring. It can even be positional. There's like wedge pillows you can get to keep the person on their side. Um, there's certain nasal anatomy conditions that cause snoring that can be fixed easily with a surgery. So, and the reason I say all this and say it's so complicated is because it is so complicated. It's, it may not be as simple as the person's overweight. It may not be as simple as they have big tonsils. It, it, they may have sleep apnea, they may not have sleep apnea. So I would say if you or your partner or your child is snoring, definitely go see somebody that specializes in it um, because they should be able to help you um, and help you figure that out. There's even clinical trials with all the snoring stuff. Um, but oh, the, the device that I used to work with, um, by the way, for anybody who's listening, because this may be helpful for some people, but so sleep apnea, there are certain patients that when they put on a CPAP, which is that um, like pressurized breathing machine that helps so when you have sleep apnea, something is collapsing when you're trying to breathe at night, when you're trying to sleep, something is collapsing and keeping you from breathing. And so you may be asleep physically, but like mentally your body is fighting that sleep, trying to wake you up enough to open up your airway so that you can get more air and more oxygen. So sleep apnea, as you can imagine, is really detrimental to your health. You never get a good night's sleep, really affects your blood pressure, it actually affects your hormones. It makes it really difficult for them, to, people who have sleep apnea, to maintain um, their weight. And it's just, it's really, sleep apnea is terrible. So some people don't do well at all with CPAP for whatever reason. It doesn't fit their face or they have PTSD and like I have several veterans that like literally could not, they were like, I can't sleep with this device on my face. I can't do it. Um, and there used to not be very good surgeries for it. I mean, there were surgeries you could do and they were like 50, 50, whether they were going to be helpful or not. And they're crazy painful and it was just kind of a bad situation. So there became this device called inspire, um, this is going to sound like an ad for Inspire, and I um, just, like, disclaimer, I don't, I, I love Inspire, but I, they, it's not an ad. It's just because I used to work with this device, and it was really cool. So um, it's a hypoglossal nerve stimulator, and so what that means is there's this little implantable device that actually, part of it goes in your chest, and then the other part actually gets tunneled, like, up under the patient's tongue, and when they are having an apneic episode or bef actually senses before 
it think it, it senses before it thinks you're going to have an apneic episode and it gives your the, the nerve that moves your tongue a tiny bit of stimulation not stimulation that you can feel but a tiny bit of stimulation moves your tongue forward and actually opens the airway while they're sleeping so they kind of compared it to like a pacemaker but for sleep apnea anyway so if you have someone who's really struggling with sleep apnea and they can't use any they can't use their CPAP and they've tried surgery and it didn't work for them tell them to go look at for Inspire um, and see if there's a provider near them that does the surgery to implant it because it is a really 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 cool really cool device So if you've been following Dabbleco and me for any length of time, you know that I'm super careful with anybody that I endorse or any partnership or brand here. So the goal is always to share evidence-based medicine and things backed by actual science with our audience and our followers. So I was thrilled when BetterHelp approached me to do a partnership with them. So thank you so much to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. BetterHelp is an online platform that connects you to counseling in an incredibly convenient and affordable way, which I think are the two biggest barriers to counseling, access and affordability. So I was actually really surprised when I looked up their rates for counseling. They were a third of what I feel like I've ever heard and what I've personally paid. Um, it solves both of the problems with literally the click of a button on the internet. So I have personally seen the benefits of counseling. I know firsthand how important it is, and I know it plays a crucial role in mental health. So check them out, and they will know that I sent you, and you'll get 10% off your first month of counseling if you head to betterhelp.com slash dabbleco. Um, so it's super easy, betterhelp.com slash dabbleco. Thanks, guys. Um, so also got several more questions this week about HPV and the HPV vaccine. So somebody said, you know, teenage girls, HPV vaccine, yay or nay. So I actually talked about that a little bit in my last 10 questions. 100% yay. I don't want to um, like over make it redundant for people if you listened last time. Um, but if you didn't hear the last 10 questions episode, definitely go listen to that. And then another person said, if I never got the HPV vaccine and I'm 29 years old now, um, is it too late? No, it's actually not too late. Um, and who do you talk to about it? You can talk to your primary care person about it and insurance, um, previously wasn't covering it for adults. I don't know all the ins and outs of insurance regulations. So like, do not hold me to that, but, um, Yes, talk to your primary care person about it or whoever you get your shots from. Maybe your OB or OBGYN might know. Um, and they should be able to get you Gardasil or find out if your insurance will cover it. But they, they should now. They've started covering um, covering it way up to, I believe, 80, age 45. Um, so, yeah, still super, 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 super important. Um, you just never know... Just, you just never know, you know, there's just a lot of people that have HPV and it's not just an STD and it's, you just, you, it's so, so important. It's not just cervical cancer, it's head and neck cancer, it's penile cancer. I mean, it affects men, it affects women. It really, um, is such a crazy thing to think that there's a vaccine that can prevent one of the, several of the most horrific cancers that we know of today. Um, next question. Love this one. You love diet sodas. So do I. Many med people claim they're basically poison. Thoughts. Um, so are they basically poison? No, 
of course they're not basically poison. And I love a diet soda. Like, love a diet... I, well, I don't love Diet Pepsi because Pepsi's gross. Love a Diet Root Beer. It's caffeine-free, sugar-free. Love a Coke Zero. Um, how many do I drink a week? I don't know. I, don't, I really don't know. I probably don't drink one maybe two or three times a week. Um, I used to not keep them in my house. I've kind of gone back and forth. I used to keep them in my house. Then I quit keeping them around. Now I'm kind of gotten back more. And for me, so first of all, the dose makes the poison for absolutely everything. So anybody who's claiming they're poison, that no, that's just not true. That's fear-mongering, one. Um, anyone in medicine who's claiming that they're poison is probably like they have a different agenda. Because other than like freaking cigarettes, I mean, I can't, like I, I mean, I can't even think of any one thing that humans can consume right now that's harmful enough in small doses for anyone to say that it's poison. So, I mean, I think you just have to take everything in context, right? Like, are you drinking water? Are you eating fruits and vegetables? Are you eating an otherwise well-balanced, um, you know, healthy diet with, you know, enough fiber and really, you know, tons of fruits and vegetables? Um, if all you're drinking is, and, and they do, yeah, I mean, there are different studies that are linking, you know, possibly diets, you know, sodas are linked to, um, insulin resistance in some way. And it, but is that what's causing it? There's a difference between correlation and causation, right? So if diet sodas are correlated with diabetes, um, is it that the, um, artificial sweetener is actually, causing that we just we don't know they're still trying to figure that out or is it this just that happens to be people who struggle with their weight are also drinking diet sodas and so then and they're the people who have the higher incidence of diabetes and I mean we do not know yet there is there are some people that say that the artificial sweeteners have like a they trick your brain into um thinking that you're getting a big rush, rush of sugar and so it, it messes with your insulin production. But then I've read that, you know, there's people that say that that's actually not accurate. Um, so I think it's all about context. You know, are you otherwise eating and drinking healthy things plenty enough? You know, is it going to kill you? No. Is it the best thing you can drink? No, it's not. I would never be like, they're totally, they're totally fine. Like have as many diet sodas as you want. No. I mean, I, ideally I think we probably wouldn't drink soda at all. Like, are we meant to drink it? Prob not. Um, but we do, you know, am I meant to drink as many beers as I'm drinking? Def not. Um, but here we are. So, I mean, for me, there are definitely nights when, um, like I'd rather, I would like to have a Bev, an adult beverage, but sometimes I have an, uh, you know, a diet freaking root beer instead. And I think that's probably better for me. I don't know. So, the dose makes the poison. I think that is the biggest thing you can tell yourself over and over. Literally anything you consume can be harmful or toxic at some level. You can overdo it on water, you know, and it's just, it is, it is what it is. So just be mindful of everything else that you're drinking and eating. Um, this is a tough one. So will we see return of COVID restrictions in the fall with flu season, et cetera? So um, I doubt it. 
And here's why. One, I think by the fall, this is just a theory. I mean, like, I have no idea. So, obviously, anything can happen. Um, I think that it's going to be very similar to kind of now where the attitude, I, I think what I've kind of seen most places is the attitude is like, Hey, you've, everybody's had the opportunity to get vaccinated. And if you want to get, if, if you choose not to get vaccinated, you know, I think America kind of has this attitude now, of like, if you don't want to protect yourself, then we're not going to protect you either. And that's, I don't know, it's a tough conversation. So, um, I think also though, things are pretty well controlled right now. So that would be really hard to say. Like if things get totally out of control in the fall and there's some variant and all of a sudden the hospitals are full and the ICUs are full again and we're like in this place, you know, where we were, let's say last winter and it was a, you know, shit show. Do I think some precautions might come back? Maybe, but I think it will be really, I think it will be really tough to get, people basically to go backwards. Um, I think we kind of have this screw it attitude and and we just basically, I think the best thing to do is kind of to try to figure out how we can make the best of what we have now. And that's to encourage people to get vaccinated. Um, and hopefully we, we won't see, you know, a backslide in um, hospitalizations and new variants and things like that, but, but we'll see. Um, and kind of going along with that, someone asked, why did Saudi Arabia only give one Pfizer shot instead of two was too necessary? Um, I should have looked this up. I have no clue. I just thought this was interesting because I know that the UK at some point was considering doing one shot instead of two. So, um, I'm, I'm guessing because they, there was a shortage, um, and they could only get enough for people to have one shot and one shot widely is better than, you know, not having enough, having everybody get one shot is better than having some people get two shots really. And so I'm, I'm assuming that that's the way that they did it. Um, but yeah, I mean, two is necessary because I think that believe the efficacy was pretty high with one, like 80%. Um, and then, you know, it jumps to like 99% with two shots. So obviously 80% is good. Um, but that's still, I mean, 20% is, is a big, a big gap. So, um, you want to get everybody vaccinated with that second shot. So yeah, so two is necessary for sure. Um, but you know, one is better than, than zero. Um, like this next question, but it's a tough one. Um, but I, I get asked things like this a lot. And so I kind of want to touch on it a little bit. So someone said, can you talk about nutritional things like Juice Plus or that Prolon Fast Mimicking Cleanse? I don't know what the Prolon Fast Mimicking, mimicking Cleanse is. Um, so here's what I would say about most of those things. I'm just going to try to speak generally because I, I don't want to, you know, shame every anybody for, for participating in this or for you know, working with companies like Juice Plus or, or Prolon or whatever they are, I think that um, as a general rule of thumb, you should probably consider that the best thing to do is not, to, you know, you're, you're never going to supplement your way out of a bad diet. You're never going to supplement your way out of not exercising. 
You're never going to supplement your way out of drinking too much, whatever it is. Um, and so, you know, is something like juice plus going to hurt you? Super unlikely. Um, is it expensive? Yes. For what it is. Absolutely. Um, it's, you know, a, a supplement and their whole, their, their thing is, you know, they say bridge the gap, um, bridge the gap between what you're not eating and, and what's in their supplement. But, um, it's, it's an expensive way to do that when you could probably have had one smoothie that week and gotten 7,000% more fruits and vegetables than you would have in a powdered dehydrated vegetable capsule. Um, you know, and most of these things now are sold through these multi-level marketing companies. Um, and that's tough. That's tough for me. I mean, it's, it's hard when there are really qualified medical professionals who, you know, think about dietitians like my friend, Lauren Maniker, who literally have master's level education on stuff like this. And that's all they do all day, every day. And then you've got like Janet down the street that sells this weight loss powder or, you know, smoothie supplement or whatever. And it's like, I I can't reconcile those two things. Um, so I think what's hard for me is that they're so expensive and, um, yeah, it's just, it's always better to just have a balanced diet, man. And you can't, supplement your way out of that. Um, I think Lauren said that on the podcast one time and I was like, that's truly brilliant. Um, so moving on, can you have a thyroid issue even if blood work doesn't show markers for it? You totally can. Um, talking about Hashimoto's thyroiditis specifically. So, um, one thing with thyroid is there are lots of labs to check. Um, they're at least, gosh, like five or six labs that you can check. Um, and with a thyroid panel specifically, there's one, you know, one that kind of everybody looks at, which is the TSH or the thyroid stimulating hormone, but then there's T3 and T4, and then there's the TPO and T, you know, TPO antibodies. And it's just, there are a lot of things you can look at when you're evaluating the thyroid. And, if you take Hashimoto's, like you might not be having a flare specifically at that moment when you get your labs checked. So your labs might be normal that day, um, but they're not normal the next day. Um, and yeah, so you, you definitely can, if you think you have a a thyroid issue or, um, if you think that whoever's evaluating you, if, if they're only checking one or two numbers and, you just really, all signs are pointing that, then go see an endocrinologist, you know, it never gets, never hurts to, to get another opinion. And even with an endocrinology, so you have to remember with all medical subspecialties, like you may see an endocrinologist who doesn't really do very much thyroid. You may see an endocrinologist who does a ton of diabetes or pancreas stuff or adrenal stuff or whatever. And that's, you know, they don't love thyroid. Um, but you know, for example, in Charleston, there's, um, a awesome physician named Brittany Henderson, who uh, she's supposed to be on the podcast and I've got to nail her down for a date. And then we will talk about thyroid for like an hour. Brittany, if you're listening, give me a date. But anyway, she started the Charleston thyroid center and like, that's literally all she does is thyroid. So I know that's, she's kind of a unicorn and that's hard to find. Um, but 
yes, the short answer is yes, you could potentially have um, an issue even if one or more of your labs were normal. You may not have had the right labs checked. You may not have had the labs checked at the right time. Um, so yes. Now, with that being said, women... So thyroid disease in women is really common, um, but women like really want the issue to be with their thyroid, and often, a lot of times it's not. So just also keep that in mind. Bless it. Um, okay, last one. I just always said I want to end on a happy, funny note. Um, I don't have a happy, funny one. Oh, oh my God. Here's this is such a good one. <laughs> okay. Someone wrote and said, TMI, but I get swamp ass so bad. What can I do about it? And then they said, oh my God, I can't believe I just wrote that. That's so embarrassing, but it's so true. Please help me. Okay. I don't know that I can help prevent you from actually getting swamp ass. I mean, that's, you're just sweating, um, which is normal. And I'm sorry that you're sweating in your butt specifically. Um, but what I can tell you is with the summer comes a lot of concern for buttony, um, which is butt acne or asne whatever you want to call it. And so I would just encourage all of you who are struggling with that, um, just consider your butt like your face. Like if you are in the shower, wash your butt a little extra. Maybe take your exfoliating cleanser and put it on your butt. And maybe take your blemish medicine that you're putting on your face and put a little bit on your butt. Um, Because... The skin on your butt is fairly similar to the skin on your face and you can have acne on your butt just like you can on your face and you get rid of it the same way. So Godspeed with that um, because it's summer and it's really hot, at least in South Carolina. Um, Nashville's not so bad yet, but I'm in South Carolina now and I was like, whoa, it's it's real hot. Um, But yeah, that was too much information because I don't know you, um, but I feel like you are all of us, right? Like we all get it. It's very hot. Our asses are sweating and we, you know, need to, need to take care of it. So just shower it off a little extra, exfoliate, um, get out of your tight, sweaty leggings. Um, cause that's not helping the situation at all. Um, and put on some breathable cotton undies, girl, and just, you know, call it a night. That's what I would do. You know, we're all in this together. Anyway, that is, I don't really know how many questions it was. I think it was at least 10. It might have been 11. Um, Thanks for listening. Thanks for submitting your questions. And as always, if you like the podcast, rate, subscribe, send it to your friends, share it. That's how uh, people find us. And that's how I get really good guests. And I'll talk to you next week. Thanks. Bye.